HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Fire Cider, a health tonic based on the traditional New England cure-all of raw apple cider vinegar and honey. For more information, visit firesider.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Trevor, and this is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. Today we are talking about soba noodles with Sonoko Sake. We are interested as young farmers in exploring alternative markets, exploring alternative grains, exploring alternative cover crops, and figuring out how to work within the food system to find good markets for those uh, diverse outcomes of our evolved and evolving agronomy. Welcome to the show, Sunoko. Hi. Um, is there any way I could hear you um, better? I'm just wondering. Your voice is very far away. Yeah. The only thing is we need to get money for Heritage Radio to have better equipment because they are limited. Okay. So I'm going to just try to... We're going to ask um, all our friends to donate to Heritage Radio so they can have better okay. equipment. All right. Well, I'll, I'll um, listen very carefully then. So, uh, welcome to the show, Sunoko. And Thank you. I, uh, w- yeah, would you mind giving a little bit of a backstory on how you discovered the soba noodles and uh, who you are and what you do? Yes. So, um, I am Sunoko Sakai, and I'm born in New York, um, but raised in many places, including um, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and um, Tokyo, and Kamakura. It's the Kanto region of. Um, Japan, uh, and um, I grew up eating soba noodles, and um, it was my favorite noodle. Uh, when we moved back to um, the United States, um, I started to um, miss those noodles, and the only noodles that you could get here, the only soba noodles that you could get here were the dried, industrially made noodles that were basically almost all wheat. And I just, um, you know, couldn't, couldn't. Um, I, I just wasn't happy about that. So every time I, I went back to Japan, I would do a pilgrimage visiting these artisanal noodle places. And then I, I, I learned that 
a lot of the buckwheat was grown right here in the United States, and yet it got all shipped to Japan to be milled into flour. So I started bringing that flour back. I started studying noodle making, and um, that was about seven years ago. And so I just became a a noodle maker from just wanting to eat those noodles. <laughs> but it's sort of got, grown into a bigger purpose, but that's how it all got started, just just by passion for good soba noodles. That's a good passion. It's a good start, isn't it? Uh, so let's maybe do a little bit of explaining um, for our young farmer audience, many of whom are uh, growing vegetables, some of whom are growing grains, many of whom are raising animals some of whom are starting to think about raising their own feed or blending seeds that are more regional or thinking about non-GMO seeds, and um, some of whom are having existing client base, sometimes trying to develop new client base, maybe are in relationship with chefs. Um, what are some of the ways that um, the market is evolving in the kind of soba space? Like, who are the people who are buying and eating the soba noodles um, and what opportunity exists um, so, um, there? There. Well, soba noodles is buckwheat, and buckwheat is one of the oldest crops that have, you know, that people have, farmers have grown here in the United States. In fact, one, the founding fathers, uh, like Thomas Jefferson, uh, grew buckwheat, uh, not just for for cover crops, which I think most farmers would use it for here, um, like as a green manure to mellow the soil, but also as food because wheat back then hadn't taken over. So if you, like, go back to the old Stephen Foster folk songs, you'll, like, oh, Susanna, they think about buckwheat cakes, and um, um, that was a, a staple food, but something happened. Buckwheat kind of got pushed in the background and uh, wheat just became the the, the primary um, uh, grain um, and um, but I think we are entering a period and I it's it's not just um, like people like me who come from who, who was I was born here but I moved back to Japan grew up in Mexico I'm bringing back things that I grew up with I grew up eating with and we're bringing with us not only uh, we're bringing cultural diversity in the way we eat, but we're also, you know, like I want, I want to use that buckwheat that's turned into manure, um, so that uh, to be used as food. So I think we are creating these new demands. And so my, in my case, it's like not farm to table, but table to farm because I'm, I'm saying, God, you know, you you grow this buckwheat, please let let's figure out how to how to make this into a commercial, a sustainable uh, grain that uh, farmers could grow and then we could get millers to mill it, bakers to bake with it, and noodle makers to make noodles with. And so it's a whole educational process that I am involved. And um, and buckwheat is a beautiful crop because it grows very fast. It has It, it does not belong to the wheat family. It's, it's not a grass. It's, um, it's actually... Uh, part of the um, rhubarb family, and it only takes 75 days to grow. So you could, a lot of farmers in the northwest, like in Washington, grow it as a secondary crop. But most of what they grow gets exported to Japan. 
So I would like to keep the buckwheat here and create a buckwheat economy. And it grows. Actually, it grows. It's, it's, it adapts quite well to different climates and takes on the terroir of the soil of the place where it grows. So you can enjoy different flavors and crunches, textures, and um, so I, you know, it's, so it's we're still sort of f- just starting, starting that process of of making these um, these ancient grains, other than wheat, appealing to um, to Americans. Well, and so one thing I do know uh, is that there's an increasing number of Americans who are not eating wheat, and we know in the United States that wheat is sprayed often with a desiccant before harvest. There's people in the anti-glyphosate uh, campaign are talking a lot about wheat being sprayed with glyphosate, which is Roundup, causing irritation. Regardless of what the cause is, there's a lot of people who are going wheat-free, gluten-free. Um, are you seeing an uptick in the demand for buckwheat? And could you, ta- um, yeah, could you talk to that and what, where that market is kind of going? Well, um, you know, I'm not really um, um, uh, the grower. I'm, I'm the end user. I am a... Um, cooking teacher, noodle maker. I do pop-ups around the country. I um, educate, I go and teach soba noodles uh, or ways to cook with buckwheat. And I have in the last, I started making noodles and teaching noodles about uh, since 2009. And um, I have seen a tremendous enthusiasm and growth and interest in, in buckwheat because um, as you know, a lot of the um, a lot of people have gluten intolerance issues, and um, so this buckwheat is a gluten-free uh, pseudo grain, and um, and nutritiously, it's actually it's a complete protein, and also it has lots of antioxidants. So, th- so people, I'm finding that people are paying attention to alternative. Um, grains, you know, ancient grains. Or, uh, bakers are becoming interested. Farmers. I have um, actually, I have a project in Southern California where I am working with farmers to plant a variety of ancient grains, which include buckwheat. And um, slowly but surely, we are, um, I think, creating a market. It takes. It's not a fast process. This is going to take us maybe three to five years to create a market economy for these. Um, uh, you know these other varietals. You know because we've basically been we've basically just been a wheat culture. So um, I, you know, I'm very um, optimistic that uh, there's going to be a market for like maybe we'll have you know a good quality flour that people can use to make noodles and. Right now, so the quality not, is basically more for pancakes. It's milled too coarsely. What you could find in the market is a little bit too coarse. But this is all part of our, you know, growing up process, learning how to make a good, good flour, quality flour that's fresh. I don't treat, you know, I especially treat buckwheat like a fresh fruit. So, what I'm aiming for is, um, is that freshness. It's not a shelf stable. Flour. It should be refrigerated. It should be treated. It should be eaten right away. Milled. Hard, you know, it, it's very 
easy to grow. And once we can all learn how to mill this properly, then it can make a, a very good noodle that's highly nutritious. And I think it's, we all have to learn how to do this uh, together. You know, I, you, we, I can't just be me eating or making noodles. You know, I have to work with farmers and get them interested in growing buckwheat and not turning it in, into the soil before it flowers and turns into seed because it's the seeds that we use to make the buck, you know, to make the, the flower. Um, and I think it's also good because buckwheat, um, the, the bees love buckwheat and it, they have a symbiotic relationship where they need each other. You know, they, buckwheat needs to be pollinated. So, and the buckwheat needs, needs the, the, you know, uh, needs the flowers f- for their honey. So, I think it's it's a it's a very biodynamic symbiotic relationship that we have going here. Well, and what the process that you describe of a whole new supply chain, a whole new value chain, or a whole new set of skills and relationships and interlocking markets, supply and demand, production and culture, uh, the culinary tradition, the appetite for the chef to serve, all of this has, of course, to kind of co-evolve and recover. Um, and that's happening not just in Buckley, and so it's a, it's of interest to, I think, the kind of phenomenology of that is of interest to those of us uh, who, are, who, are, who are engaged in the, in the project of reforming and reshuffling our food system. Um, one thing I wanted to cover was some of the established markets that we have already um, that we can look to as guide or analog, uh, you know, a couple of the different culinary traditions that we have seen revived. Uh, I'm thinking about specialty soy, you know, specialty soy products. And uh, maybe you could tell me if you're doing any learning across from looking at other uh, products and other culinary traditions about how those kind of reestablish themselves in the wasteland of industrial food. Um, well, I think the 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 best example would be the ancient wheats that are coming back. That we, um, um, I I I am working uh, with a seed grant from Anson Mills, which is a miller and farmer based in uh, uh, Glenn Roberts, based in um, South Carolina, and. He has given me um, seeds, a variety of uh, wheat seeds, ancient wheat seeds, um, heirloom seeds like a Sonora that once used to thrive in the southwest west region, um, which makes great tortillas and um, can be used for baking cakes and uh, also in bread making. So these were, and, and there's also red fife, and there's a variety of grains that were grown in California, yet because the industry moved to the Midwest, the tradition um, was basically wiped out. But now we have these farmers bringing those back and planting them. You're not huge acres of it. You know, we're just starting very slowly. This is what it is. It's, it's, you know, it's taken us almost a century to wipe out the industry. Now it's gonna, it, we're not going to be able to recover in a year just because you get tons of seeds and you 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 know you, you broadcast it out into the fields and and harvest it. You know we have to rebuild not only 
we have to rebuild an infrastructure. And the infrastructure means not just the farmer, but uh, and the way he, he is going to um, take care of the soil, but we have to, um, you know, the soil needs to be healed, and, and, and then there are the bakers, the millers, and the consumers that all have to be part of this process. So um, we just, um, yeah, we had a, our second harvest last year of some wheat that we grow, grew in Tehachapi, and we baked, we t- did a, a, test, a trial baking, and it was just the most delicious bread I've ever tasted. So um, I'm very optimistic that we're going to get there. And we've done some fundraising to buy equipment. I mean, what we're using right now are these, the farmers are using vintage equipment, um, like a vintage harvester um, that can, um, like a combine that can go into the fields um, and harvest the, the, the wheat and on a smaller scale, because everything is done in a smaller scale, and it's not industrial scale, you know, thousands and thousands of acres uh, to harvest, but we're, we are um, keeping it small and um, to see how, how it goes. So it's a very slow process, but I'm seeing really positive results. The enthusiasm in Southern California is, uh, is pretty amazing. So you're saying the market is growing, the appetite is growing, you have some small grain growers growing uh, experimental plots and working with older equipment. Um, one of the questions that um, one of the questions that I have is how would how would um, the infrastructure look if you succeed? So we could look at the wheat example and the heritage grain example um, that increasingly bakeries, especially regional bakeries and uh, bakeries that are selling into farmers markets and bakeries that are associated with with cafes and with restaurants are using heritage grains and trading with heritage grains and increasingly the small and medium-sized mills are um, are buying those grains on a contract basis from growers in the southeast. I know that the buckwheat sector is always recruiting new buckwheat growers and putting out advertisements and contracting with growers to grow buckwheat. There, there's a whole tradition of pancakes from like West Virginia and uh, the Appalachian region, and in Acadia. Uh, in Canada and northern Maine, there's a whole other buckwheat crep tradition. So there's these kind of pre-existing models of how these kind of sub-industries are organizing themselves. What would be your vision or goal in terms of buckwheat? How does the buckwheat, how would uh, growers interact with um, the buckwheat industry as you envision it? How, how would they access, you said? How would they interact? Interact. Oh, interact. Would they be, I think. Would they be, I think it has would, to be like a local economy, like within their region. You know, they they should try to create a market that um, an infrastructure that will involve the various players, and um, it, it may 
it may really start very small. You know, buckwheat can also make honey. Buckwheat um, can be milled into flour. Buckwheat hulls can be made into pillows. But um, you, I think you have to find the like-minded people to to be willing to take on, uh, to participate in the venture um, in a an experimental way and 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 see where that goes. Because right now we the farmer that uh, received the grant from Unsum Mills is not selling anything. The first thing he did is he, he said, let's just plant one row. And the row has now turned into like 15 acres um, uh, per variety. He has five acres, I mean five varieties of wheat. Uh, he's also done two rows of, uh, of buckwheat. And the, the, the most important thing he did is to see how those ancient grains acclimated to the, to the region, and then he saved the seeds. So, so that's the first thing you do is you save seeds, and that's, I guess, any farmer would probably know that. And then um, as a community of people interested or willing to participate, we have all observed and learned and tasted, and, and then the market hasn't quite started yet for us. Um, slowly. Some, some of the farmers have sold a little bit of the snora that's grown and milled uh, by the local miller, um, but I don't really have the numbers, but I think they're slowly uh, approaching the local bakers to see if they would buy it. And, and I think it, the price point is also very crucial. You know, if you make it too expensive, they will shy away and they would rather go the industrial route, right, than to go to the local smaller um, uh, grower route. So um, these are things that we, it's just like, um, it's a process that we're learning and, and we don't have answers for everything, but I think each region has to find their own answers. But we also gather together, like grain, I go to the grain growers, uh, the grain gathering conference in Washington. Uh, Stephen, Dr. Stephen Jones leads the Washington State um, University Bread Lab, and there's about three or 400 people that come there, scientists, bakers, noodle makers, um, uh, grain enthusiasts, to exchange information and see what kind of varieties go well and uh, what people are doing all around the world. So um, it's an educational process also. One thing I know is that um, each region has its own gifts and challenges and different um, infrastructure to build from. One, um, one avenue I wonder about and would love to explore, especially as we're looking at the generational transition with organic, where even in organic we have a majority of growers still uh, in their 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, and an incoming generation who are in their, you know, 20s and 30s and, and much less proportionately in their 40s and 50s. Uh, and that's a, kind of just a statistical um, um, basis, or that's, that's the reality we're dealing with. So one of the questions, therefore, becomes, you know, how do these young businesses interact with the supply chain and what kind of um, a gentle way in could there be? And so one of the questions I wonder about is the organic 
industry, so people who make cookies and crackers and baked goods and stuff that shell on shelves and in packages, everything from burritos to cookies, those companies, could they buy a little bit of their supply chain, especially in their non-wheat uh, areas? Could they be buying more regionally? Could there be partnerships developed between some of those organic companies and these incoming growers where the where they you know they maybe the growers are able to start scaling into a contract i think, um, I think so produce. I think that's actually starting to happen oh they, tell me about like, it that's um, exciting. producers want to go directly like producer to producer like manufacturer to producer or um, instead of having a lot of middlemen in between, you want to go directly to the grower. So maybe a baker wants to work directly with a um, a farmer to source that single variety of buckwheat or wheat and um, and brand it as a local product. I mean that's already starting to happen with wheat, and so um, you know it's. I think I'm all for local localism, uh, localizing it so we don't you know have to. We can minimize our carbon footprint, but um, I think there's. Um, I, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but um, that's okay. I mean, I was just kind of exploring the idea, and I think um, all the people who are going to be listening are going to be thinking through what makes sense for themselves. Yeah. Also, I guess in conclusion, one of the follow-up questions would just be: How do we learn? How do people who are listening who are all of a sudden getting jazzed on buckwheat and thinking, oh, shucks, I could do that. Uh, where do they learn about buckwheat? Where do they find good buckwheat seeds? How do they sign up for your classes? Um, oh, well, um, I am a mobile teacher. I'm a cook, mobile cooking teacher. I teach on the West Coast uh, from Los Angeles all the way up to San Francisco, Seattle. And I've taught in Chicago. Um, I, I'm going to actually be going to Charleston, South Carolina to teach at the Culinary Institute um, next week. Um, and I've been invited by Anson Mills to um, uh, do some work in buckwheat. So here's, um, so, you know, I am, I'm a very mobile cooking teacher, noodle maker, and anyone that wants to, um, anyone that has questions or um, want to learn could take my class or email me with questions. Um, um, I have a, a website called cooktellsastory.com, and if you go to there, um, I also have another one called commongrains.com, but it just needs to be updated. So if you go to cooktellsastory.com, you will see all the events that I'm doing, all the cooking events I do, uh, the pop-ups I do, um, and um, I, I try to stay as active as possible. Um, uh, I work with universities. I work with uh, private institutions. Um, I work with chefs, collaborate with chefs. Any place I can, can, can uh, any place I can find, I will go because I want to spread the. It's for me. It's like a life mission. To it's like the spreading the gospel of buckwheat. <laughs> yeah, spreading the gospel of buckwheat. I, well, does that make I sense? I don't know if that's a that's good English, but, <laughs> but that's how I feel. I don't know what it is, but this gray, this this plant has completely what, taken what over my life. What do they say? Life. It, 
Yeah, it makes more sense than it does dollars. But that's the case with everybody in agriculture. So you're in, we're in good company with each other, I think, all of us. So um, we come to the end of our time, and I'm really thankful for your uh, for your interview. I have a few announcements for the Greenhorns people. Um, one of those announcements is it's almanac time. He, uh, Henry and Charlie and I and Nicole, we have put together the list of chapter topics and um, assignments, but we are open to submission. And we are open to submission until the end of February, but we would prefer if you send us a line to almanac at thegreenhorns.org stating your intentions, what are you intending to write about, and giving us a little heads up so we can start formulating how the thing fits together. Uh, and then you can also join the reminder mailing list that will help you stay on track with the deadline for the 2017 Almanac. So with that, it's raining on the West Coast. Praise the Lord. And I hope you all have a, a, a cozy, nice place to be. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.